The Old Testament lesson comes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 6 through 12. It's found on page 740 of your pew Bibles, if you wish to follow along. Isaiah brings the word of the Lord. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament lesson is the book of Philemon. Yes, the whole book. It it can be found on page 1202 in your pew Bibles. If you find Titus, keep going one more. If you get to Hebrews, stop and go back. It's very short. It's easy to miss. So, um, and let me uh, point out to the uh, footnote that uh, Philemon, uh, pardon me, uh, the name of the main character, so to speak, of this uh, Onesimus, that means uh, useful. And you'll notice that as we go through the text. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. 
I pray that your partnership with us in faith will be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who has become my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have the benefit, some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, as do Mark, Aristocrats, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. to be here with you today. Uh, in my imagination, I, I've told some of you this, but I, through COVID, would f- like daydream about being here. And in my, my imagination always ended up like draped over the pulpit sobbing. So we're doing well so far. Uh, <laughs> um, I wanted to just give a little announcement. We are not going to have the video. We've been going through the series on the Bible, and we've had these videos every week. This week, we're not going to have it. We're not stopping the videos, but it is a long service and a very short book, so I thought we could skip it this week. We do, however, have some of these, which is like the outline of the book. 
So um, I think Randy was going to pass some out. If kids want to color them or if people want to look at them, you're welcome to them. I don't think we have enough for everybody, so we have about a dozen. And we also have some other coloring sheets if there are kids who are interested and bored. Um, I don't promise to be exciting for them. Uh, let's just pray for a second because I need to calm down, and that will help center me. Lord, what a joy to be here and um, to gather with your people again. We pray that your uh, word would go forth this morning, that you would speak what you need to speak to each heart and mind. We uh, yeah, just say thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen. It's one of the gifts that COVID has given us, huh? Is reminding us that this is good. Um, so when Tony and I, you know, Tony said we've been here for two and a half years now, at, pastoring at Sherman Street. Um, and when we, before that, we were at a church in Hart, uh, this little church called New Hope Community Church, and we've told you some stories about that. And the congregation there was doing really important work. Uh, they were about half people living above the poverty line and half people living below it. And they were doing this difficult work of doing life together across lines that people don't normally cross these days. Um, and it was difficult for everyone involved. <laughs> um, and that's why we were initially drawn there. Because, is this, do I need to move this? Is it right? It sounds echoey to me. We're okay? All right. We were initially drawn there because that work seemed like work that Jesus was all about, um, drawing people together across lines. And things... Oh, oh. Oh, oh. I'm going to try to not touch it. Okay. Things haven't gotten better in this country, right? Dividing lines uh, continue to deepen and become more difficult to cross. And it's not just socioeconomic status, of course, it's you know, political affiliation and race, and I'm sure you can name 15 things uh, that we have trouble talking to our neighbors about. Which is sad, right? Because this is a Christian country, and Jesus talked a lot about oneness. Jesus talked a lot about love and unity, and we are still so, so divided and it's challenging and, I think, holy work to try and cross some of those lines. Of course, not everyone sees it that way. Um, when we were at New Hope, uh, people would sometimes look at it, you know, which was, it was a poor church. It has an ugly little building, and it's out in the middle of nowhere. And people would wonder why we would go there. The Christians who would kind of voice this to us would say things like, wouldn't your gifts be better used somewhere else? Uh, but a friend of mine who came to visit us once, she said it a little more bluntly uh, and rudely. <laughs> she said, why are you wasting your time with all these useless people? I was obviously shocked to hear someone say that out loud. Um, she had just met a man named Kevin from our church. Uh, he had 
really long, like matted, scraggly hair. Um, he had fried his brains with too many drugs years before, and it was really tough to talk to him. Uh, he would talk in a loop, so he would just tell you the same thing over and over again until you, like, pretty forcefully interrupted him. It felt super rude, but there was no other way to, like, have a real conversation. Um, he was pretty tough to be around. And he was also a child of God. And if you listen to his looping stories, you would hear the incredible pain in his life. Really, my friend's words say more about her than about my friend Kevin. Um, she was a very successful person. And I think she thought of herself as quite useful. Probably put a lot of pressure on herself to be that way. As much as it was an offensive thing to say, I think what it exposed in her, that need to be useful, is a really heavy burden to bear. And Paul uses some of that same language, um, as Ellie mentioned. Paul uses some of that language in his letter to Philemon. He says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to both you and me. And it's surprising to hear Paul talk about that, like talk about a person as useless or useful. Um, but that's because he was talking about Onesimus, whose, name's me, whose name means useful. And he has that name because he was born into slavery. He was sentenced to a lifetime of being useful to someone else, whether he wanted to or not. Now, at the time of the letter, um, Onesimus was supposed to be being useful to Philemon, who was his master and owner. But I guess he wasn't living up to his name, and we don't know exactly why. It seems like Onesimus has run away and has somehow ended up with Paul. Like he's either lost or stolen some of Philemon's money. Like we don't really know the details. Um, we hardly know anything. We just have this like few paragraphs to go on that you heard read all of it this morning. Um, and again, you can see, as we have seen through this series, that our texts are so much more than like, what point can we extract from this for our lives? We're looking in on life with God. And these texts are lived relationship. So here are some of the things that we can know uh, about their relationship from the text. Philemon is a rich man and a Christian. He hosts a church in his house, which means he has a big house. And, of course, we know he owns slaves. Now, slavery at the time in the Roman Empire was very different than slavery as we think of it. Um, at any given time, about a third of the population in Rome would have been enslaved. It was kind of commonplace. It wasn't based on race. Anybody could be a slave, really. You could be born into it, like Onesimus. Some would sell themselves into slavery to settle a debt, or because it could be better than a lifetime of poverty. It could also be much worse. Right? Slave owners had total control over their slaves. In this way, it is like slavery in this country. They were property, without rights or recourse. So if you were a slave, your life depended on the character of your master. Some slaves in the Roman Empire, they were treated well and given lots of responsibility. They were well-educated. They could even count on being set free. 
but others weren't so lucky. They were subject to the whims of abusive owners. If you did something wrong as a slave, you could legally be chained up or branded or beaten. If you ran away, you could be killed. And even if you had a great master, even if you're one of the lucky ones, you're still property. Like an ox or a hammer, you are a tool, not a person. Even in the best, even in the best cases, slavery is still a degrading and dehumanizing institution. And we don't know if Philemon was a good master or not. We don't know how Onesimus ended up with Paul, but it seems like Onesimus is in trouble. And Paul, while sending him back to his master, he throws the weight of his own authority and status as the apostle onto Onesimus's cause. Now, Paul's tone in the letter is warm and friendly, but he is asking Philemon to do something extraordinary. He asks Philemon to forgive and to welcome his useless, runaway slave as if he were Paul himself. Philemon has all the power in this situation. He is wealthy. He is in the right legally. If Onesimus has run away, Philemon has the right by law to punish or kill him. And no one would say he was wrong, except for the slaves, right? And they wouldn't dare. But Paul asks Philemon to treat Onesimus not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. And people sometimes criticize this letter because Paul doesn't come right out and say slavery is immoral and inhuman, that it's counter to the way of Christ. But you could not live the logic of this letter and hold slaves for very long. So one thing that is just... I don't know, kind of brings this to life, I think it's cool, is that the letter to Philemon would have been read aloud to the entire church. And Philemon lived in Colossae. It's very likely that this letter would have traveled to the Colossian church right alongside the book of Colossians, both coming to the church in Philemon's home held in the hands of Onesimus. Both letters being read, one right after the other, to the whole church. So as Colossians was read, the whole church gathered in Philemon's home to hear the word, of, word from Paul and a word about God and God's will, they would have heard these words. There is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and is in all. There's no longer slave and free. Christ is all and is in all. And then right after that, the whole church would have heard Paul's plea to Philemon to put flesh onto those words. First by putting aside his own anger, then by disregarding his property, his rights, the law, and the culture to accept his slave as his brother. Onesimus has not become useful in Paul's eyes because he's going to be a great slave from now on, but because he belongs to Christ. 
and his usefulness to Philemon as a slave is now beside the point. And it is that shift in perspective that will necessarily shift their lives together. How long could Philemon call Onesimus his beloved brother and also call him his property? How long could Philemon see in Onesimus Christ himself and still act like he owned him? How long could Philemon watch Onesimus at the communion table as they both partook in the same body and the same blood of Christ before he had to set him free? I think actually, you know, it's June 20th now, but with Juneteenth, thinking about how the white Christians separated themselves from the black Christians in the church and made them sit in the back or up in the balcony Is it because they couldn't hold this tension? You can't be in church with somebody and sit at the communion table or sit right next to them and sing praise songs and not feel that tension of something being wrong. And I think Paul was counting on that. The dividing lines that both Onesimus and Philemon live under cannot withstand the presence of Christ. Christ is reconciling all things to himself. And Shane Claiborne has this great line. Um, He says, redistribution of wealth is what happens when rich and poor fall in love. Now, maybe that phrase, redistribution of wealth, like, makes you really uncomfortable. Uh, But whatever you think about what the government should or shouldn't be doing, you cannot argue with the fact that when we fall in love, we rearrange our priorities and our resources. Like, when Tony and I got married, he took on, like, tens of thousands of dollars of my student debt. (laughs) And you don't just do that for anybody. Maybe help a little. I think the movie uh, Schindler's List makes it really clear. Um, If you haven't seen that movie, you should watch it, like, later this afternoon. Uh, It's hard. (laughs) I think I should watch it every year, just to remind me of what's important in life. Um... If you've seen it, you'll remember, I'm going to totally spoiler for those of you who haven't. If you've seen it, you'll remember the powerful final scene where the German businessman, Oskar Schindler, he stands surrounded by some of the 1,100 people he has rescued from the Nazis. But as he looks into their faces, he does not feel pride, but shame. I could have got more, he says. I wasted so much money, you have no idea, I could have got more. And he looks around him, a rich man who has given up almost everything, and he takes inventory. He motions to the car. He says, this car, why did I keep the car? Ten more people right there. And he looks down and he pulls a pin off his jacket, and he says, this pin, two people. It's gold, it would have given me two more. At least one. One person. And he breaks down sobbing and he says, one more person and I didn't. That is the power of falling in love. It rearranges everything. 
I think one of the tragedies of the American church is how infrequently those who the world deems useless and those who it deems useful get to worship together, to share together in the body and blood of Christ the way that Philemon and Onesimus would have had to. So few of us have the chance to fall in love across lines. And so all the divisions between us remain. Despite Jesus' repeated call to unity, despite our earnest desire to heed them. When Tony and I were first interviewing at New Hope, we uh, went to the food pantry there, and we saw a kind of poverty we had never seen before. And we both were surprised to feel the intensity of the prejudice that rose up in us. We both also felt a really strong sense of call, but I remember saying, like, do we have to go there? Now, I'm sure back then, I wouldn't have thought much of it when people made jokes about white trash. But I, like, nobody I knew cared about that. I didn't know anybody in that designation. But it took getting to know people doing life with them to learn to see past the stereotypes, to beating hearts, to beloved brothers and sisters. Now please, I worry that someone will hear me saying like, go out, make a project of getting to know someone who's different than you, and that can be really harmful, so don't do that. It can be just as dehumanizing. But particularly if you are white and thinking about anti-racism, a really easy way to begin this work is to read, to read widely, and read, I think, read fiction by people of color, so that it's not just, like, everything about this person is, is racism, but, like, you can see a beating heart instead of just our white supremacy and let life fill us and love. And whoever you are, I pray that, I invite you to pray that God would give you the opportunity to fall in love across lines in a way that is healing for everyone involved. Jesus will upset our status quo in all sorts of ways. Maybe some that we can't even imagine now but that will unfold as we learn to put flesh on, our, on the gospel every day. It's kind of like our lives are spread out before us like a board game. And we spend our time, you know, rolling the dice and moving our pieces and buying and selling and gaining and losing. And then Jesus comes along and he slams his hands down on the table and all of our precious pieces fly up into the air. And when they land back on the board, everything has shifted. And we slowly start to take, take stock of the new game that we're playing. Those who had been last, in last place breathe a sigh of relief and stand a little taller. But those who had pulled ahead in the old game 
might struggle. Like, didn't that belong to me? And we all have to reckon with what the new board means for each of us. And how we, how we will live in this new world that Jesus has made. As we study the board, we notice that in place of all the little signs that used to show us who was ahead and who was behind, all of the markers that said who was useful and who was useless, who was a slave and who was free, now there is only one sign on every piece Only one marker on each and every piece, regardless of what it had achieved, regardless of what had been decided about it in the old game, and it says only mine. Onesimus may have been a slave, but in the new game, he belongs not to Philemon, but to Jesus Christ. There is no more slave or free Onesimus is a beloved brother. That might be a tough adjustment for Philemon. He was doing so well in the old game. It turns out, though, that the new arrangement, though it might be hard to get used to at first for some, is grace to all of us, even those who were ahead before things got reshuffled, even those who like my friend, consider themselves useful and worthy because of it. It's a lot of pressure to live under that pall of usefulness and success, needing to achieve in order to be okay. (laughs) And it can make us mean. Sometimes I think uh, retirement and getting older though they are very difficult things to go through often, um, they may be a gift in that way. If we have gotten caught up in the lie that usefulness and worth are the same, it forces us to realign ourselves and find our identity finally in Christ and not in what we do or achieve. Over each one of us, Whether the world would call us useless or useful, Jesus Christ says, mine. Every square inch and every human face. When we get over the challenge of the new order of things, we will all breathe a sigh of relief. Jesus' new order is grace for all of us. This reshuffling isn't just something that Jesus did to us, right? Jesus started it in his own self in order to know us, to welcome us into God's kingdom, God upset God's own playing board for our sake, taking on flesh, making himself nothing, a holy God becoming sin for us, throwing the weight of his status and authority onto our cause, dying so that we could live. We all might have been deemed useless were it not for the humility and persistence of God's love. But now we all, Philemon, Onesimus, the Apostle Paul, Kevin, and my useful friend, and me, and all of you, we can approach the communion table, each with our own stories of God's grace in our lives 
and we all share in the one cup and the one loaf, in the one body of Christ, with the same spirit living in us. And we come to know ourselves as God's beloved children. Looking around the room and seeing, like Jamie said, other children of God shining like stars. As we are reconciled to God and one another by Christ, who is all and who is in all. Please pray with me. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we put ourselves above and below one another. For the things that we decide um, are the most important things. What makes someone worthwhile, what makes someone useful. Lord, may we know what it means that we stand on even ground before you. Each one of us honored by your spirit, given gifts to serve with needs that need to be served. Lord, may we see you in one another, particularly in those people where it is difficult for us to see. And forgive us when we fail. In Jesus' name, amen.